One Week Season. season fam. Welcome to the week 18 edition, the first ever week 18 edition, the final edition of the 2021 regular season of the OWS Angles podcast. As always, I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. Throw this baby on 1.5 X speed and let's get started. We've had quite a journey with the Angles podcast this year. I was thinking this morning we've had Several travel sessions in the Angles podcast. We had the uh, power outage in New England. We had the Angles podcast where Abby had to go to the ER and I was holding Evelyn during it and she was talking quite a bit in the background as one-year-olds tend to do. There was there have been a few low on sleep. There was a sick angles podcast last week. I was thinking about that this morning because we are combining several things at once. I've got a power outage here. I feel the best I've felt since last Tuesday, but am still recovering from this sickness. And I'm on an hour and a half of sleep because William was awake for four hours last night and Evelyn was awake for three hours last night. So that that is where I'm at right now. Rather than delaying the Angles podcast and getting it out to you late after a little three-hour nap, uh, I am wrapping everything up. I got the player grid out early this morning uh, or earlier than it typically comes out, I should say, as you may have noticed, and we'll get the Angles podcast out a little bit early as well. With that, uh, I actually think that my brain is working in a pretty good uh, streamlined fashion. For those of you who are new to the site over the last couple weeks, this is back-to-back weeks in which there are some apologies for my brain not being quite as sharp as normal, but my thoughts are actually kind of stretched out pretty well on this week's slate. Week 18, week 17 in the past is such a unique slate that my processes for it have kind of been established over the years to where I know what I'm looking for. I kind of know the order in which I'm going to attack things to have a full sense of the slate. And really the structure I have set up for myself already for the site kind of helps to produce all of these thoughts on my end and kind of put me in good position on this weekend. So uh, doing the angles email where we, you know, we always take a look at what each team has to play for. And then uh, the NFL edge kind of emphasizes that a little bit more. And then roster builds, messing around with rosters and getting a sense of salary and how things fit together and what the strategies are and all that are always kind of pieced together in such a way that by the time I get to this point in the week, I feel like I'm way ahead of the field in general in terms of understanding what the slate actually looks like on this unique week and probably ahead of most of my sharpest competition as well. Not to say that they won't catch up, but most of them probably aren't digging in until Saturday, uh, especially right now with COVID news and, and all the extras that come with that. And so, yeah, it's nice. I feel like I have a, a nice little leg up and um, we'll probably take tonight sort of easy, but get some additional roster construction 
messing around done tonight and then have uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning to really buckle down and, and put together something good this week. So before we dive into the bottom-up build this week, what I want to do is I'm actually going to go game by game and touch on what I see as sort of the shape of each game. And what I'll primarily focus on is actually the, the negatives of each game because it's an interesting slate. There aren't that many overwhelming positives on this slate as a whole across the board. There aren't that many teams with high Vegas implied team totals. There aren't that many games that are expected to be competitive with a shot at shooting out. And I think that that on a week like this, what we often see is people get pretty optimistic. You tend to say, okay, well, sure. Uh, like I'll take this example, right? I really want to like Russell Wilson this week. We know that in order for Russ to hit, he needs the opponent to be putting up points and forcing him to be aggressive, or I should say forcing the Seahawks to allow Russ to be aggressive. And so on a week like this, when there's just not a lot to love, and I'll kind of go through this, but most of the stacks, there isn't, and I go on this pretty deeply in the Oracle this week as well, but the, the most of the stacks, they're isn't that high of a likelihood of them going for 4x or significantly higher? And so if you get 3.5x to 4x from a stack, you're probably getting about the best stack you're going to get this week. You're probably not finding uh, week 15 Tyler Huntley plus Mark Andrews stack. Maybe you do. Maybe there is something like that this week, but the likelihood is lower. You're probably not finding a week 16 Burrow plus Higgins or a week 17 Burrow plus Chase on this particular slate. It's just the way that this slate shapes up. So we're going to kind of touch on that as we go game by game. But because of that, you look at Russ, Russ to Lockett, and you recognize that, man, Lockett can go for 35. Lockett can go for 40. Lockett can go for 50. And since the start of last year, we can just make it simple like that. When when Lockett has a 30-plus point game, Russ has his best games of the season. And it, it kind of rises to the level that Lockett rises. So if Lockett's having a 40 plus point game, Russ is probably putting up like 35, 36, 37 points. If Lockett's putting up a 30 point game, Russ is probably getting up to 26, 27. And so when you look at where these guys are priced because of the way that this team plays and their typical production, it's tantalizing to look at this and say, man, the Cardinals could put up points here and Russ could attack. It could be his last game with the Seahawks and they want to spoil the Cardinals season. And all of that's true, right? But the actual chances of it happening, I looked through Cardinals game logs to be like, how often do they give up 300-yard passing games? And I got through like eight game logs before it was just disheartening. It's like, man, this team just doesn't give up 300-yard passers. And the reason is they give up the third fewest pass plays of 20-plus yards in the NFL. Everything is designed to force teams to march the field. And so the chances of Russ... And one thing that we see is like Josh Allen. Let's take Josh Allen, for example. People tend to... You can write this down if you want. <laughs> Remember this for later. But um, especially this season, as the Bills' offense has adapted and evolved, people tend to look at soft matchups and be like, man, Josh Allen's going to crush this matchup. Josh Allen's good enough that he crushes difficult matchups. What Josh Allen doesn't need is a soft matchup in order to crush 
What he typically needs is a competitive game. In soft matchups this year, like last year, the Bills, they're like, okay, we're just going to keep passing the ball. But this year, this year, the Bills basically said, look, last year, that was one of the things that hampered us in the playoffs was our inability to run the ball. This year in their loss to the Jaguars, nine to six, or I guess they won that game nine to six, but whatever it was, it's just this ugly game against the Jags. And what the Bills ended up realizing was, us trying to just have this downfield passing attack, it's going to trip us up at some point. We have to be multi-layered, and they've started really pulling in the running game. And so when they're in these soft matchups where they blow out the opponent, go through the game logs. That's not where Josh Allen's having his biggest games. Where Josh Allen's having his biggest games is in competitive games, regardless of whether the opponent is a soft matchup on defense or a difficult matchup on defense because Josh Allen is good enough to compete and put up big games, just like Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, I don't care if he's in a difficult matchup. What I care about is if this game can be high scoring. If the opponent can put up points, then I expect Patrick Mahomes to put up points as well. That's actually less the case this year than it is for Josh Allen, but that's a whole other story. Um, So it's tempting to look at Russ and say, okay, but... The Cardinals are a tough matchup, but it's Russell Wilson, and he's going to break through because if the Cardinals put up points. But then realistically, we look at how the Cardinals run their offense and how likely are they to put up five touchdowns in this spot or even four touchdowns in this spot. Now, they might get up to 27, 30 points, something like that because of field goals or whatever. But the chance of them actually putting up four touchdowns are low, and the chance of them putting up five touchdowns are really low. It's just not the way that this offense operates right now, especially with DeAndre Hopkins out of commission. And so then then you have to say, okay, the Cardinals would have to put up a lot of points and Russell Wilson would have to beat this difficult matchup, which is not something he's really proven that he's able to do lately. And so Russell Wilson is uh, a, a side example because this isn't one that the field is going to be like, oh, I really want to play Russ this week. This is kind of something that I've been on where I'm like, nobody's going to be on Russ and I see all these angles and maybe it could hit and maybe it could hit. And if I were playing MME, I would 100% have some exposure to this spot. But what the field wants to do in the, these difficult weeks is basically just be a little overly optimistic. So it's not going to be on the Seahawks spot. It's going to be on the more obvious spots. But they want to kind of justify like like Justin Jefferson right now is projecting projecting as the highest-owned wide receiver. Well, we know that the Vikings need an opponent to put up points because they don't open up their offense unless they have to open up their offense. Could they do something differently in the last week of the season and what could be Mike Zimmer's last game? Absolutely, of course. But do you want to bet on a new thing happening on a wide receiver that everybody's rostering. In other words, everybody's rostering him for the wrong reasons. And you could say, okay, well, actually there's a right reason that I could come up with here and and play Justin Jefferson. But that over optimism is something that we're going to see on a tough week like this, where people kind of just say, well, I can't find the best spots. And so I'll just be a little bit overly optimistic on some of these spots that I can make a case for that could make sense. And so what we want to do is kind of unravel this slate a little bit more and be able to figure out, okay, where are the tough spots and where are the softer spots and what makes sense on this slate? So, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, I'll try to pause from now on so you don't get that coughing uh, in your ear. But the 
the game by game will allow us to kind of get a sense of what these games really provide positively and negatively. And then we'll kind of use that as a launch, launch board, springboard, <laughs> sending off point to go through the bottom up build. And uh, uh, similar to last week, we'll end up talking through a lot of these players as we go game by game. But the uh, game by game will kind of give us our starting point, but also give you a starting point for the slate against everything else that you already have the player grid, the Oracle, the rest of the scroll, the NFL edge, the angles email that kind of broke down everything from a macro viewpoint. And then uh, the bottom up build again, we'll be able to talk through some strategy stuff and some additional stuff on individual players. So we are going to go game by game as they are listed on the site. So as they're listed in order in the NFL edge or on the home page. So Packers Lions. Packers Lions, what we have here is actually a pretty, pretty standard setup from the Lions, but the Packers are probably not playing key starters, core starters for the entirety of this game. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this here because I go pretty deep into it in the NFL edge and in the, I believe in the player grid as well. But one of the things that the, and I definitely go into it in the Oracle, but one of the things, one of the mistakes that the field tends to make, and not even just the field, but content providers, fantasy outlets, is they act as if every starter is going to be sitting. I saw one national fantasy outlet, we're all family here, I can say it is Roto World, basically saying like that Goff is an interesting DFS play because he'll be facing the Packers' second string defense. Let's break this down. First off, a first string defense isn't 11 players. It's like 15, 16 players, sometimes 17 players who are rotating through and are very much a part of the game plan. So let's take the same thing on offense, right? You got like 13, 14 guys who rotate through on offense. Let's take those 13, 14 guys. Let's take, let's say 16 guys on defense. And let's say that those 30 players sit, the starters sit, the starting offense, the starting defense sits. Well, you've only got a 53 man roster. Two of those are, one of those is a punter, one of those is a kicker, one of those is a long snapper. So that leaves you with 20 players that you think are going to be playing. And what, you got a couple guys playing offense and defense here? You see what I'm saying? My point is, on these weeks where teams rest starters, most starters are still playing. They're going to take out Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams and probably Aaron Jones because... He's been dealing with a lot of nagging injuries, but I said I wasn't going to go too in-depth here, and here I go. But they're not going to just sit all 30 guys or even, let's say, the 22 guys who literally are the first guys on the field on both sides of the ball. They're not sitting those 22 guys and saying, okay, well, these other 28 guys, no subs on offense, no subs on defense. And let me tell you, once they pull a core player from the game, they're not putting them back in. So they're going to start out with their regular defense, and then they will gradually pull some players off the field is typically how this ends up happening. Same thing on offense. They're going to start out with the regular offense, and they'll gradually pull some players off the field. And they might have somebody they make inactive, a couple guys they make inactive and say, look, we don't want these guys to get hurt. They don't need to be playing. But probably you get a couple tune-up drives from the offense, but this isn't preseason with a 90-man roster and then you just throw all the second and third and fourth stringers in there and let them compete for roster spots. This is, you know, one of these wide receivers, Alan Lazard or Marquez Valdez-Scantling is going to be playing basically the entire game because there's just not enough other pass catchers for them to not do that. 
So something to think about in this Packers-Lions game, we should not expect the Packers to be playing their core starters the entire game, but that does open up some opportunities if you think you want to try to identify the players who will be playing the entire game. So uh, I touch on this in several places, but one of the, uh, this was actually going to be in the bottom-up build. You'll see in a little bit why it's not. One of the places that I was interested in this is A.J. Dillon, because if Aaron Rodgers comes out, Jordan Love goes under center, they're playing the Lions, it's tough to expect a pass-heavy game from the Packers. So it's tough to say, okay, I have to A, identify, properly guess on which of these number two, number three wideouts ends up playing the whole game, and then hope that Jordan Love throws the ball enough that it actually matters and throws the ball well enough that it actually matters. In other words, Alan Lazard could play the entire game and and Devontae Adams could only play two or three drives and Lazard could still end up with his typical range of targets. So the passing attack isn't really where I see the biggest edge in trying to attack on this one. It's more the backfield. And so A.J. Dillon is interesting. I break it down in the player grid. You can dive in deeper there. But uh, A.J. Dillon obviously comes with some risk, but that's kind of one of these spots where you could get a week 18 special, a guy who's currently projected at sub 1% ownership and could actually end up being a 20 plus carry back on a great offense in a great matchup. So that's the Packers Lions game. The Colts Jaguars game. Uh, another one that I dig into in several spots on the site this week, but let's touch on it real quickly here. Colts are favored by 15 points. So two things. One, if the Colts are favored by 15 points and things play out that way, how likely is it that a member of the Colts passing attack ends up being the tournament winner, right? One of the sharpest things you can do in DFS is say, okay, everybody thinks that the points are coming from the backfield, so let's go to the passing attack. And you could even do that indiscriminately. The the guys who kind of are like, look, I don't even know the NFL. I just play DFS theory. In a spot like this, they might play Michael Pittman. But we can kind of look at this game objectively and and what we know about Frank Reich and how the Colts like to play. And we we can kind of know, well, they're not going to throw more than 25, 26 times if they control this entire game. So the edge doesn't really come from being like, okay, Colts passing attack. But also, if you're the Colts and you were up by a, a Patriots versus Jags type score, from last week at halftime. You remember last week, uh, well, if you were in uh, Inner Circle last week, Mike Johnson was a guest on the Hilo and, and Zandemir Saturday Strategy Pod, and Mike highlighted Ramondre Stevenson as an interesting tournament play, and his rationale was... Damian Harris is dealing with this hamstring issue. The Patriots are trying to, you know, set themselves up for the playoffs. If the Patriots have a big early lead against the Jags, it's likely that they end up resting Damian Harris for the last two quarters, two and a half quarters of the game, and go with a run-heavy approach for the last two quarters, two and a half quarters of the game with Ramondre Stevenson now as the lead back, which gives them a pathway to 20-plus touches in a soft matchup with touchdown equity. If you want to rewind to Week 17, Ramondre Stevenson, that that exact thing happened. Ramondre Stevenson ended up putting up over 25 DraftKings points. And so kind of thinking through these sides of things is really valuable and saying, okay, but what is going to happen if the game actually goes a certain way? Well, if this game goes similarly to that game, and look, the Jags are not the Giants, or they are the Giants. The Jags are not the Texans. They're not the Lions. They're not one of these, quote, bad teams that has stayed competitive deep into the season. The Jags have been bad. So it's not unlikely that the Colts stomp the Jags. Now, the Colts have lost, I think, like 
five straight in Jacksonville, something crazy like that. So, you know, crazy things could happen. But if this game is a blowout win, you probably don't see Jonathan Taylor for the last quarter, maybe even quarter and a half of this game. The Colts have a playoff game the next week. They've been giving him 30 carries a game, right? Rest the guy, get him ready for next week, close out this game without him. So if the Colts are winning in a blowout, it could actually be less likely. Now, Jonathan Taylor is still going to have a strong game, right? He's going to get 20, he's going to get 25, 27, 28 points. But it becomes less likely that he gets those 35-plus points that you'd really love at his price tag. So if he fits on a roster, he's totally fine play, but he's not a guy I'm prioritizing this week unless it's with a bring back from the Jags where I can say, okay, the Jags are keeping pace through this player. Uh, my preference is Laquan Treadwell. Uh, Marvin Jones also works well here. We also have somebody in the bottom-up build from the Jags, though I wouldn't consider him the guy who would keep this game close. Uh, so you would want to consider that. Also, a lot of people will play Colts uh, Colts defense with Jonathan Taylor. Just auto-correlation. But think about that again. If the Colts are winning big, do you really think that Jonathan Taylor is playing all four quarters. And now he doesn't need to play all four quarters to get you 20 plus points, to get you 25 points. But again, you're paying 9K for him. You'd like him to get you at least 35 points. And optimally, he scores 40 plus and leaves everybody who didn't roster him in the dust. That's kind of the point of rostering anybody is optimally, you're hoping for one of those games that leaves everybody in the dust. And so if you see that the likelihood of one of those games is a little bit lower than a typical week or a little bit lower than everybody's going to assume, there's some wisdom in saying, okay, well, maybe I'll poke around and look elsewhere this week. So uh, one of the things to think about is if the Colts are dominating this game, does Jonathan Taylor play all four quarters? Well, if the Colts defense special teams is having a huge game, which means they're suppressing points from the Jags and getting turnovers and potentially even scoring defense special teams touchdowns, doesn't that increase the blowout doesn't that increase the amount by which the, the Colts are winning and increase the likelihood of Jonathan Taylor sitting a little bit early? So I actually kind of like the idea this week from a strategy perspective of saying Colts defense without Jonathan Taylor or Jonathan Taylor without Colts defense and with a Jags bring back. Now, things could play out differently. Things could play out in such a way that Colts defense plus Jonathan Taylor ends up being one of the top correlations on the slate. Jonathan Taylor puts up 40 points. The Colts defense puts up 16 points. There's ways you can paint that picture, but that's the way a lot of people are going to be looking to play this one. And it's actually a little bit sharper on paper to play things the other way, and people won't be playing things the other way. So you add the strategy component on top of that, and it's a really interesting setup. Washington football team and the Giants. There is nothing I'm interested in from this game. The Giants basically rolled over and died last week. They refused to throw the ball when they were down multiple scores. Washington doesn't have a particularly dynamic offense, and they're not looking to maximize points. They're not looking to, if, if they're holding the Giants down, they're not like, hey, keep the foot on the gas. Let's try to get up to 35 points. Let's see if we can score 40. Washington is going to say, okay, we've got the lead. We've got the game in hand. Now let's play strategically to keep the lead, keep the game in hand. Uh, Antonio Gibson has been banged up. Jarrett Patterson is somebody they'd probably like to look at for the future. So Gibson has no injury designation is expected to play, but it's likely that he doesn't see just a full-on, all-out workload. So everything from this game is kind of off the table for me. I think uh, Terry McLaurin would be interesting in large field play, but he will not be making my narrower player pool. Bears at Vikings. So we already kind of touched on this, but just really quickly, 
I would not play Justin Jefferson without playing Darnell Mooney. You could say Allen Robinson as well. He's only 4K and he's super talented. And he's another week removed from COVID. And it wouldn't be that shocking if Allen Robinson kind of closed out the season with a big game. But Darnell Mooney is averaging 11 targets per game in his last four games with Andy Dalton. Darnell Mooney is the guy that Andy Dalton looks to. Andy Dalton's going to be under center again. And uh, and if if Justin Jefferson is having an elite game, it's almost certainly because the Bears are doing enough on offense to force the Vikings to really keep opening things up. So I really like a Justin Jefferson. I don't like. No, I like him. And I think he'll have a solid game. I'd be surprised if he falls shy of 20 points. But again, you're paying 8K. So you'd like at least 32, and you want to have a pretty clear pathway to him putting the slate out of reach for the people who didn't roster him. You'd love for him to put up 35, 36, 40 points. So what paints that picture is Jefferson plus Mooney. So Jefferson solo is not a play that I really like, especially at super high ownership, but not a lot of people will combine Jefferson with Mooney. Furthermore, uh, Kirk Cousins has a high ceiling in the right game environment. So again, this is the type of spot where people could get overly optimistic. Uh, Andy Dalton has started seven games this year. The Bears have topped 22 points once, and that was last week against the Giants, who again, literally just stopped passing the ball down multiple scores. We're just like, okay, well, we give up. So it's hard to see the Bears coming out and putting up 27 points, 30 points, 28 points, whatever. And having one of these, you know, 30 to 35, 30 to 34 games that the Vikings can have and that can lead to these higher outputs from their offensive pieces. But the uh, Bears and Vikings is interesting to build around if building around it, and that's the way that I would approach this game. Titans at Texans. Now let's go through a couple things here real quickly. Let's go through the Titans' most recent games, starting from the most recent moving backward. Last week, they dominated the Dolphins, 34-3. Oh, the Dolphins were on a seven-game win streak. Okay, well, who did the Dolphins play? They literally played nobody. Uh, still a solid team, a really solid team, and that's a good win for the Titans, 34-3. The week before that, the Titans won by three points against a really tough 49ers team, 20-17. The week before that, the Titans lost to the Steelers by six points. The week before that, the Titans dominated the Jags, as every team does. The week before that, the Titans got demolished by the Patriots. The week before that, the Titans lost to the Texans at home by nine points. The week before that, the Titans beat the Saints by only two points. Now, not all of the Titans pieces were healthy for all of those games. Obviously, Derrick Henry's still not back for this game, but A.J. Brown missed some of those games. Julio Jones, for whatever it's worth, missed most of those games and will be playing this week. But it's interesting, the Titans' most recent games. They're the number one seed. They are a... I, I've been watching uh, Man in the Arena. I just finally got a chance to sit down and start watching it. And um, I'll put it like this, right? Like... It's a Vrabel, Mike Vrabel team. It's a very Patriots-like team, as in they're a team and they know how to win games. But they're not a super imposing team, especially without Derrick Henry. They're not, they don't scare you talent-wise. They're just a good football team. Uh, so that's why they're the number one seed, right? They've been able to win with, in, in tough circumstances while missing a lot of players. They've been able to take care of business in most of the spots they should take care of business. And of course, they lost to the Jets and lost to the Texans. But by and large, they've been able to kind of skate by on a softer part of their schedule without Derrick Henry and position themselves for this number one seed. 
But the perception of them as the number one seed is a little different from the actual reality of the way they've been playing and the way that their games have played out. Now let's look at the Texans. Texans lost by 16 points last week against, again, that tough 49ers team. The week before that, at home, they beat the Chargers 41 to 29. The week before that, they dominated the Jags, as every team does. The week before that, they got smashed by the Seahawks. The week before that, they got smashed by the Colts. The week before that, they lost to the Jets by a touchdown. The week before that, they beat the Titans by nine points. The week before that, they lost the Dolphins by only eight points. The week before that, they had a competitive game against the Rams that they lost by 16, 38 to 22. So, the, what we see here, again, the Texans can lose big, but also the Texans have an ability to be competitive. And what we have here in this Texans-Titans game is the Titans favored by 10 points and the Texans carrying a Vegas implied team total of only 16.25. That's a pretty low Vegas implied team total for a team that scored 41 against the Chargers and 30 against the Jags and that scored 22 against the Titans just a few weeks ago. So I think this is a very interesting spot this week, and I think it's one of the more interesting strategy stacks to consider. We dive into this a little bit more deeply in the player grid, a little bit more deeply in the Oracle, a little bit more deeply in the NFL edge, and we will touch on it in the bottom-up build. But there are just what we've kind of seen this already, right? Do you want to stack Aaron Rodgers? No. Do you want to stack Jared Goff? Probably not. Do you want to use Carson Wentz? No. Do you want to use Trevor Lawrence? No. Do you want to use Taylor Heineke? No. Do you want to use Jake Fromm? No. Do you want to use Andy Dalton? Probably not. Do you want to use Kirk Cousins? Only in a very specific game stack. And it's not particularly likely to play out that way. So what we've seen so far, we're going to hit on the rest of the quarterbacks as we go through this. There aren't that many super attractive stacks. So we're going to have the people heavy ownership on Josh Allen because he's heavily favored against the Jets. Okay, well, we've already talked about that. How likely is it that Josh Allen puts up 32 to 40 points? Well, it's likelier that he puts up 22, 25, 27, 28 points in this spot against the Jets. We're going to have some ownership on Huntley, but Huntley has three touchdown passes in 157 pass attempts this year, right? That's that's basically five games worth of pass attempts. He has three touchdown passes. So there are certainly ways for Huntley to disappoint even against his salary. One of the things I talked about uh, in the player grid and the NFL edge with Huntley this week is his ceiling is extremely high, but his standard range of outcomes is lower than most people are assuming because they're just looking at that one huge ceiling game. Again, Huntley could hit another ceiling game, but what we're kind of looking at is everybody's looking at these spots optimistically and following the herd. So I would rather look at a spot optimistically where I'm way away from the herd. So one of those spots that I'm considering is Davis Mills and Brandon Cooks and bring it back with A.J. Brown. You get you could bring it back with Dante Foreman and tell a different story and say, okay, the Titans take a huge lead and then Foreman's running out the clock and the Texans are coming back. But I really like the idea of saying the Texans who have played hard, played competitively, and look, Davis Mills plus Brandon Cooks has gone for basically 4x their combined salary three of their last five games. Throw in A.J. Brown, who's gone for 30 to 35 points in three of his last seven games, and recognize that the type of game in which A.J. Brown's likely to do that is the type of game in which the opposing quarterback and number one receiver are hitting, and you realize that this is a higher probability bet than most people are going to realize. We could play out this slate 100 times, and I would say... 
35, 40, 45 times, this stack ends up paying off for four exits combined salary or even a little bit better. All right, I just saved you guys from a nasty coughing fit with a pause on the podcast. The uh, lack of sleep and the lack of heat in the house is certainly not helping, but I will recover once the NFL regular season is over. And hey, look, we are almost there. Steelers at Ravens. Just touched on this, but really briefly, I think that people are overrating Tyler Huntley's standard range of outcomes. So call him volatile. Call him a guy with a super high ceiling, but his typical score is actually going to be a little bit disappointing. It's not going to hurt you because of his rushing upside, but his typical score is going to be a little bit disappointing. So Huntley, when he's super popular, is a guy that I would be less likely to want to play. And when he's unpopular, more likely to want to play. Just something to think about there. I do like Huntley. He's kind of one of the four quarterbacks that I'm considering this week. Uh, But he's, you know, given where his ownership is likeliest to come in, he's not a guy that I'm as high on as I would be if his ownership were lower. Again, still in the mix for me. The Huntley plus Mark Andrews plus Chase Claypool bring back stack is pretty much the same price as the Davis Mills, Brandon Cooks, A.J. Brown stack. And you can kind of play out those numbers and the ceiling is higher the chances of it, of it hitting are a little bit lower, but the ceiling is higher, right? Huntley can go, we've seen it, he can go for 35 and Andrews can go for 35 and that's 70 points right there. Uh, and Chase Claypool, I'll talk about him in just a sec, but very easy for him to go for 20 plus this week with Deontay Johnson likely out. So the chance of that going, that that stack going for like 90 points is much higher than the chance of Davis Mills, Brandon Cooks, A.J. Brown going for 90 points because that, that stack kind of caps out at like 75 to 80 in most reasonable scenarios. It's not likely that Davis Mills just has a career day and he and Brandon Cooks combined for 55 points. And then A.J. Brown adds 35 on top of that, right? Like we're probably maxing out at about 45, 46, 47 points from Brandon Cooks and Davis Mills, unless, again, we just get a career day, which is not particularly likely against a uh, motivated Titans team that's well-coached and has a lot of good players and has a ton to play for this week. So um, I do like the upside of this Huntley stack. But I also think that it's going to be, or Huntley himself is going to be a little bit overowned relative to his his likeliest range of outcomes. And so if I'm playing him, I'm going to do it with the full stack and kind of hope that it sort of outstrips every other stack on the slate. Because as we'll see, there aren't that many stacks that can go for 4x or higher with a high probability. Uh, Chase Claypool, I love on this slate. Uh, last time Deontay Johnson missed, he saw 15 targets. Ben Roethlisberger threw 58 passes that game. So we bring it, if we bring him back down to his typical 40 passes, that would bring Claypool down to about 10 targets. But somewhere in that 9, 10, 11 target range is actually a, a pretty solid bet here. We often see Claypool get six, seven targets, and now Deontay Johnson's out, opens up some extra looks, and it, it kind of changes up Claypool's route tree a little bit as well. So Claypool I like a lot. Najee Harris I also like in this game. I touch on that in the player grid, so you can check that out there. Bengals, Browns, Burrow, out. Jamar Chase probably won't play a ton. It'll probably be a situation similar to what we talked about with the Packers, right? You start out with Brandon Allen under center. 
you start out with your starting wide receivers, your starting offense, your starting defense, but you kind of gradually pull out some pieces throughout the game. This also kind of one of the reasons, you know, Belichick had talked in the past about one of the reasons the Patriots don't rest guys is what does a what does a key player mean? Like everybody's a key player is kind of how he likes to frame the message for his locker room, right? Like no, no one player is any more important than any other player. So if you start saying, Hey, these guys are sitting this week and and you have to play well, that kind of jolts that message out of whack a little bit. So one way to kind of work around that is, okay, well, everybody starts and then, and then, you know, you don't make a big show out of it and you just kind of gradually pull some guys off the field. Okay. Well, clearly Jamar Chase is more valuable than some other guys. And so he gets pulled off the field and, and, you know, some guys get pulled off the field, but that doesn't make people as salty as just saying, Hey, these eight guys are not going to play. And, you know, these other guys are just going to stand on the sidelines all game. And the rest of you have to go out and play this game. So we'll probably see that happen with the Bengals, um, mixing out. So I would think that Samaje P Ryan just gets an extended look again, basically guaranteed 20 touches each time, uh, or Mixon has been guaranteed 20 touches each game of late in this role. And I think that P Ryan's going to be in that same role. So 20 to 25 touches at 5,300. I really like him a lot. And because he is playing without Burrow and because the Bengals are an underdog, his ownership projections are coming in pretty low for imagine if Joe Mixon were priced at 5,300 and had his normal role. And it was like, oh, but the backup quarterback's going to be in and the Bengals aren't favored. Would people not play Mixon? No, he would still be talked up as like, the he'd be 30% owned on, on that slate at 5,300 if his price just suddenly dropped. And DraftKings was like, well, yeah, but we're dropping it because Burrow's not playing and, and because the Bengals are six-point underdogs on the road. Everyone would be like, cool, yeah, I'll play Mixon this week. So Pirine doesn't have quite the same skill level as Mixon. Like when you watch Mixon on tape, he pops, but the role being the same and, and like Alexander Madison doesn't have the same skill set as Dalvin Cook. He's, he's closer than P Ryan to Mixon, but recognize like role matters a lot. And so I would put P Ryan's, you know, proper price at like 6,600, 6,800, somewhere in that range. So 5,300, I like him a lot in this spot. That's really the only thing that I'm interested in in this game. I haven't been on the Browns all year, so I, there's not really a reason for me to go to them against, you know, two-thirds of the Bengals starting defense um, with Case Keenum under center. Uh, again, large field play is always a little bit different. You could make a case and, and build a roster around this and c- try to come up with something, but um, not something that I'm focused on this week. Panthers. Bucks. This is an interesting one because we shouldn't expect, you know, A, the Bucks with a win can still get the two seed. As we talked about this week, the two seed's valuable. You don't get a buy anymore, but you still get two home games, and two home games makes a big difference. Additionally, if the number one seed loses in the divisional round, you get a home game for the for the AFC for the for the championship game, for the NFC championship game in this case for the Bucks. So the Bucks want this two seed, and what they need is they need the Rams to lose in a game that, you know, they're playing the 49ers. The 49ers need to win it to make the playoffs. So chance of the Rams losing, you know, it's certainly there. What, 60% of the time they win, 55% of the time they win this game, and uh, the other 40, 45% of the time they lose. So the Bucks feel good about their chances here as far as the Rams doing their part of losing this game. 
The Bucs also need to win. So the Bucs are motivated. They're going to be treating this like a playoff game. Brady has a long history of treating these final games of the season as a final tune-up as opposed to treating it as an opportunity to rest, right? Always looking to get better. We've talked about that throughout the season. Why the Bucs in blowout wins continue to play deep into the game. Always looking to get better. So what we should also recognize here is not only are the Bucs without Chris Godwin, which is still a pretty new development, but now they're also without Antonio Brown, and they know that they're going to be without both these players for the rest of the playoffs. So I see this as an opportunity, especially, you know, the the Panthers secondary is banged up. So it's not as good of a secondary as it had been earlier in the year, but you know, kind of like, Hey, this is a tough opponent to pass against and we got to get this passing attack in shape. So let's get this passing attack in shape against this tough opponent. Let's attack. Let's kind of see how all, all of this plays out, how this all shakes out and see how we're going to be, using this offense in the playoffs. So uh, I think that we're going to see the Bucks sort of running their normal offense here, figuring out who they want to attack with. Uh, I dig deeper into individual players in the player grid and in the NFL edge, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, the one thing I do want to mention in the backfield, uh, unfortunately, Roto World broke a blurb today from Greg Allman, one of the one of the top beat writers in the NFL, uh, who mentioned that he thinks that Le'Veon Bell and Keyshawn Vaughn will split the work this week. And, and Roto World broke that out there like, Hey, here's some news. Well, yeah, Le'Veon Bell played 26 snaps last week and Keyshawn Vaughn played 24. What, what the, now this week they're going to give Keyshawn Vaughn all the work. Uh, one of the things I talked about in the uh, NFL legend and the player grid is Brady cares a lot more about the non-flashy aspects of the running back position, not the, how good they are between the tackles, right? But how good they are at blitz pickup, how good they are at reading the defense and being where he needs them to be, how good they are at getting open as an outlet when the the blitz is getting to them or the pass rush is getting to them. And so those are the things that, look, Vaughn looks better between the tackles than Le'Veon Bell, but Le'Veon Bell is going to be on the field more than Vaughn because he is going to be better at handling those things. So I actually like Le'Veon Bell a little bit more than Vaughn here because I think Vaughn will get more carries and will be more effective with his carries, but Bell will get the pass game work and is actually likelier to get the goal line touches. I think that both guys will get goal line touches if there are enough opportunities, but Le'Veon Bell will probably get the first crack at those goal line touches and is, I think, the likelier player to end up scoring a touchdown here. So something to keep in mind. That's obviously the way I'm seeing things and maybe things play out differently, but that is the way I'm seeing things. And I think Le'Veon Bell is an interesting piece this week, especially in large field play. Patriots and Dolphins. It's rare that we get tournament winning scores out of the Patriots. The one place where we typically get it is the backfield, but that's typically if one guy is getting most of the work. Uh, Damian Harris still dealing with dealing with the hamstring issue. The Patriots do have a playoff game in the first round, no matter what. So I think that we're going to see kind of a split backfield here. I won't be attacking with the Patriots passing attack, and I, I won't be attacking the Patriots defense with any of the Dolphins players this week. So let's kind of rewind now and go back to the the last passing stacks we've talked about, right? We hit on Titans and Texans. We, we didn't touch on Tannehill, but Tannehill hasn't topped 20 points all season, I don't think. Um, so Titans, Texans, we're not that interested in Ben Roethlisberger and his short area passing without Deontay Johnson against the Ravens. We talked about Tyler Huntley. We're not that interested in Brandon Allen. We're not that interested in Case Keenum. We're not that interested in Sam Darnold against the Bucks. Brady is interesting. That gives us another one of my four quarterbacks that I'm actually interested in. Mac Jones, I think if I were in large field play, I could go with some Mac Jones plus a pass catcher, plus a running back and, and kind of say, Hey, look, 
maybe the Patriots just lay the wood on the Dolphins. Maybe they put up a bunch of points and nobody's going to be on this stack. I think that's interesting, but for for tighter builds, it's not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in basically any quarterback against the Patriots defense, let alone Tua. So we are down to four games left. And as you see, there aren't that many attractive stacks this week. And again, most people aren't going to really... We're kind of the only group of players that really take this like, hey, let's figure out the macro state of the slate and what it takes to win this particular week before we start worrying about individual players and matchups and all that. Like we want to know the state of the slate because that's where we come up with our best strategy angles. What are the mistakes that our competition is going to be making? How do we maneuver around those mistakes and do something differently to position ourselves, better position ourselves for first place? So understanding that there aren't that many stacks that are really strong and understanding that the field is likely to be just overly optimistic and follow the herd allows us to say, hey, look, we probably have to be overly optimistic ourselves with any of the stacks that we choose. Like the ones that I've highlighted are Davis Mills, Tyler Huntley, Tom Brady, and Russell Wilson. And I basically just talked about why all those plays could fail more than I talked about why they could succeed. But I'd rather be overly optimistic. Nobody's on Davis Mills. Nobody's on Tom Brady this week, at least not right now as a Friday. Nobody's on Russell Wilson. People are on Tyler Huntley, but the way to kind of put that together would be the full stack and hopefully you get some differentiation there. And so, you know, rather than just being overly optimistic where everybody else is being overly optimistic, let's say, well, if they're as likely to be wrong there as I am to be wrong here, let me go here because they're not here. So again, Going through these games, we start to really see the state of this slate and how it shapes up and how we might want to think about rosters as a result. Saints-Falcons. Taysom Hill's interesting. Taysom Hill naked. Taysom Hill with Marquez Callaway. Uh, I won't be going there. I do touch on them in the... It was kind of fringe, tighter builds for me. So they're not in the player grid, but they are in the NFL edge uh, DFS interpretation. So I have some thoughts on on that that you can check out there if you have not already. But Saints, Falcons, don't want to attack with the Falcons uh, offense. Russell Gage could be a bring back if you went all in on Taysom plus Marquez Callaway. Uh, I mentioned this in the NFL Edge. Alvin Kamara, 20.4 DraftKings points the last time the Saints played the Falcons. And that was the first time in his last six games against the Falcons that he had topped 18 or cracked 18 gotten up to even 18 DraftKings points. So um, the Falcons have kind of centered their defense around slowing down Kamara over the last few years. So not a guy that I'm particularly interested in, not because he can't hit, he obviously can, but just because the field isn't going to recognize that this is a tougher matchup for him. Um, and so, you know, ownership should still be where it typically is. And so I'd rather, you know, if if Kamara were coming in at like 5% ownership, then I'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, he can hit more than once every 20 times. But if the field is putting him at 15%, ownership, 17% ownership, 20% ownership, even 12, 13% ownership. That's just not a range that I want to go to given what else is on this slate. Jets, Bills. Um, I, I, I would love to play the Jets. Mike Johnson kind of highlighted this in his write-up for this game, and I had already had this thought myself when I was re-watching the Jets-Bucks game, and that was Zach Wilson's improved, man. Like, Zach Wilson has gotten better. The Jets' offense has gotten better. And my first thought was, going back to 2018, when starting in week 11 or 12 or whatever it was, 
we started watching at OWS those Josh Allen games. And the narratives around Josh Allen, the first two-thirds of his rookie year was like, what a joke he was. Oh, this guy from Wyoming with no accuracy. Oh, you know, can't believe the Bills picked him with the number seven pick. And, um, you know, I was so right about this. Josh Allen was going to suck. And, right, that was like kind of the the general tone around Josh Allen. And... Josh Allen was hurt for a few games, kind of changed some things up, spent some time with Brian Dable, fixed some things. They adjusted some things on their offense. And we were watching those Bills games at, at OWS, and it was like, man, this kid is putting up some some interesting – this offense, what I kept saying at the time was like, this offense is – it's sloppy, right? Like it's not fine-tuned, but it's really well-designed, and it's really interesting, and Josh Allen's really dynamic. And we were hammering that. Bills stack down the stretch, getting a bunch of, you know, three and a half X, four X, four and a half X games from, from the stack as a whole. And then week 17, we got whatever it was like a six and a half X from that stack. And you know, that, that's, that makes your whole season. And so we're always on the lookout for stuff like that, where the narrative changes throughout the season because players improve, teams improve. And, and honestly, Zach Wilson has improved. I would love to be able to play a week 18 Zach Wilson special bet on the Jets offense, but this offense is so banged up. Now it looks like Braxton Berrios probably won't be playing and they're playing this tremendous Bills defense in Buffalo. The Bills need a win. Yeah, I won't be going to the Jets here. And already talked about the Bills side, right? Like if the Bills get a big lead, they're probably going a little bit more run heavy. They're not going to be calling a ton of designed runs for Josh Allen if they can help it. They want him healthy for the playoff run. And so if they can win this game in the pocket and with the running backs, that's what they're going to want to do. So Josh Allen, again, probably still puts up his 22, 25, maybe even 26, 27 points. But for the salary you're spending on him, I would I have a hard time going there myself, especially at super high ownership. 49ers Rams. This is a game that, uh, again, optimistically on the surface, you kind of want to be like, hey, this game could shoot out. But when you go through what these teams have done on defense, both these teams are really smart, really well coached, really physical. It's just tough to see a shootout developing between these two teams. Both teams are going to try to force the other to march down the entire field and try to force them to kick field goals in the red zone. And we're going to see these teams maybe going for some, some tough fourth downs in the on the opponent's side of the field instead of going for the field goal. And maybe they convert those and then end up scoring a touchdown on those drives, but maybe they don't and they get no points out of that drive, right? And then that's five, six, seven minutes of the game wasted. No points. And so it's going to be kind of one of those games. Vegas has this at 49ers, 20 points, Rams, 24.5. And that's kind of the range in which I see this game playing out. It'd be tough for these teams to finish too far below that, but it would also be tough for these teams to finish too far above that. So interesting pieces from this game, but as far as a game environment as a whole, not one that I'm super interested in. And so again, going back to quarterbacks, right? Taysom Hill, we touched on. He's a little bit interesting to me. Um, on the fringes for me, he's kind of my number five guy out of out of all the quarterbacks. Um, you could bump him up your list and, and make a case for him. Matt Ryan against the Saints. Do you really want to go there with uh, Saints being able to dedicate attention to Pitts and with Russell Gage as the number one receiver? No, probably not. Zach Wilson against the Bills. Do you want to go there? Probably not. Josh Allen against the Jets. I know a lot of people want to go there, so you can make your own decision there. I've made my case. 
Do you want to go to Jimmy Garoppolo at 70% against the Rams defense or Trey Lance, who who is still really raw against the Rams defense? Do you want to go to Matthew Stafford, uh, who, you know, really a lot of solid games, a lot of solid games, but as far as fantasy production, but he's not really putting up 30 pointers. He's not putting up 27, 28 pointers. And the 49ers don't really give up those types of scores. So you're probably rostering Matthew Stafford and getting 20, 21, 22, 23 points. Could he get more than that? Can you make a case for that? Absolutely. So that's a way that you could go. Not a place that I'm going, but uh, kind of the way I'm seeing this game again is in this low 20s, maybe you get like a 24 to 27 game, but it should be tightly contested. It should be tough yards, tough points, top to bottom. I mean, that's the way these teams play. Seahawks, Cardinals. We've talked about this one. We talked about the Russ side, so I won't go deeper into that. Uh, on the Kyler side, here are his recent DraftKings scores. 22.9, He squeezed in a 30.8 pointer against Chicago when he had two rushing touchdowns. Uh, 11 Point one, twenty-two point four, twenty-five point eight, thirteen point seven, twenty-two point six, twenty-two point five. You get the picture. This is a guy you're spending seventy-four hundred for. You need him to get at least thirty points. Well, I mean, he can't get up above twenty-two, twenty-three points. He has one game above twenty-three points. Uh, I mean, two games above twenty-three points in what, like his last since since week three. That's 12 games, and he's gone above 23 points twice, and one of those was just 25.76. The other one just barely got to where you need him to get to, 30.82 points. So Kyler Murray, always interesting, but again, always a little bit over-owned for the way that this offense runs things. We've been hammering this every year in the Cliff Kingsbury offense on OWS. is like, this is, we've been calling it ever since the beginning, the, the horizontal raid, which has kind of caught on elsewhere. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was saying it eventually, but it was like, it was like week 11, 12, that first Cliff Kingsbury year before the field and other content providers started being like, oh, maybe this offense isn't as aggressive as we're painting it out to be. Whereas from the beginning, we were kind of like, wait, is Cliff Kingsbury ever going to come up with vertical concepts or is everything just going to be horizontal, march the field? And that's continued to be kind of what it was, right? Like early in the season this year, there were a little bit, there was a lot more aggressiveness through those first couple of games. And that was kind of layered in early on and similar to Mike Williams' role totally changing with the Chargers or the Eagles' offense totally changing week six, seven, whatever it was. The Cardinals just kind of stopped attacking downfield and it's been same sort of thing all over again. A lot of, you know, low 200, mid 200 passing yards for Kyler Murray on, you know, 40 pass attempts, 38 pass attempts, 49 pass attempts, 41 pass attempts. So uh, Kyler Murray, always interesting, but not a guy that I am super interested in myself. And basically what I want to say is if Kyler Murray has an elite game, well, Russell Wilson is probably also having an elite game at a lower price tag. And so that's where I would want to go, where a Russell Wilson plus Tyler Lockett stack would be a much higher upside, especially point per dollar upside stack than Kyler plus Christian Kirk. And you can still bring Christian Kirk as the bring back on that type of roster. So as you see, it's a very unique slate, not a ton to love from the passing attacks, lots of running backs. My, my list of running backs on the player grid is unusually deep. It's, it's 10 players 
D. Now they're kind of tiered, right? Like there's guys who obviously stand out to me more than others. I've got James Conner as a blue chip now that Chase Edmonds is expected to be out. And I have Samaj P. Ryan as a light blue chip. Uh, Najee Harris from like a floor standpoint is up there. I, I really like Chase Claypool and Najee Harris as a pairing with Claypool is more interesting to me than Najee Harris alone. So I should make that clear. Um, and then Eli Mitchell, Sonny Michelle, Dalvin Cook, Dante Foreman, Devin Singletary, Jonathan Taylor, from like a price considered standpoint, all of those guys are kind of in the same bucket for me. Uh, and then AJ Dillon is the only other guy I didn't mention there. And uh, AJ Dillon's kind of a unique case just because if he's sub 1% owned and actually ends up getting 20 plus touches against the Lions, um, he becomes an extremely interesting play. Now, uh, of course, we also have to account for the fact that he's priced around. James Conner, Eli Mitchell, Sony Michelle. He's priced up from Dante Foreman. He's priced around Devin Singletary. He's priced up from Samaj P. Ryan. That's a long list of running backs. And so Dylan doesn't just have to put up like a good score. If he puts up 20 points, that doesn't help you that much because somebody from this other list is going to be putting up 20 points and is going to be popular. And so what you really want is him to put up an elite score a score that's higher than guys like Devin Singletary and Dante Foreman and Eli Mitchell and Sony Michelle, et cetera, et cetera, end up putting up. And that is possible, which, which makes him worth considering, especially at sub 1% ownership. But if his ownership starts getting higher, or if we get news that's like, Hey, AJ Dillon is going to be, if we get news, like AJ Dillon is going to get 20 touches. Well, then he just falls in the same bucket as all these other guys. Cause his ownership is going to go up and he's not that much more likely to hit than any of these other guys. So it's more about, it's more about, if we don't get news, he is riskier, but that risk is more worth it because he could be sub 1% owned and could actually put up a 30 point score that kind of blows some of these other guys out of the water. And you pass these 7% owned guys, these 8% owned guys, these 14% owned guys, these 18% owned guys with your sub 1% owned guy who outscores them by six points, eight points, 10 points, whatever it might be. So AJ Dillon is kind of in a separate category than the rest of them, unless we get word that AJ Dillon is expected to get a, like a large workload, in which case he actually just becomes in the same bucket as those other guys. But from a passing attack standpoint, there's not a ton to love. And I have to be optimistic about the plays that I do love. And the way that I'm kind of using that is I'm going to be optimistic in different ways than the field is being optimistic this week. Okay, last thing, bottom up build. And we can actually probably still finish this podcast in, in, well, not under an hour, but just a little bit over an hour because there is not that much more that we need to cover because we've already talked about everything. So the core for this bottom-up build, Davis Mills, Brandon Cooks, AJ Brown. Obviously, I wanted to start with the stack. I wanted to start with, we've, we've talked enough about this and I won't go into it. I wanted to start with, you know, not worrying too much about salary and instead just saying, look, who do I really like this week from a stack perspective and I think could give me an edge if everyone were working with a 44k salary cap. For any new listeners, that's what the bottom up build is, a 44k salary cap. We assume everybody has a 44k salary cap, which allows us to A, see the slate from a different angle, B, uncover some of the value plays on the slate, and C, talk through strategy angles as well as far as how we would build a roster if everybody had a 44k salary cap. Uh, fill it in with some players I really like a lot. James Conner, Samaje Pirine, 
Chase Claypool. I will almost certainly have all three of these guys on my main build. Originally, James Conner was A.J. Dillon, but once we got word that Chase Edmonds is going to be out this week, I put James Conner in because to me, James Conner is a blue chip play. I know he's a little bit banged up, but this is a game that the Cardinals need to have. And again, these guys, Conner plus Edmonds have combined to average 28.8 DraftKings points per game. And when one of them is out, the other guy gets about 90% of the work. And so the it's like getting a guy who's averaging over 25 DraftKings points per game and getting him at 6,300. And that's just a really sharp way to play it. And even if Connor fails, even, he put, even if he puts up a 15-pointer, a 16, 17, 18-pointer, he's one of the sharpest plays on the slate. And so as a tighter build type of player, as a single entry player, uh, I, I'll probably play single entry and three max this week. But uh, as a tighter build player, you know th- that's the type of play that I'm not going to overthink, especially at the running back position. Uh, Samaj P. Ryan, again, Ways that he could fail, ways that he could disappoint, especially because the Bengals don't always use their running backs in the passing game. Sometimes they just become total yardage and touchdown backs. But even then, P. Ryan probably gets you a couple catches, 10, 15 yards through the air, 70, 80 rushing yards in a bad game. And so you're still looking at 10 points at 5,300. doesn't kill you. He's got touchdown upside. He has pass catching upside. He has yardage upside. He has everything you're looking for in a running back. He has volume. And so P. Ryan at 5,300, easy to fit in. And again, Chase Claypool, 5,100 with, with like when you look at five K wide receivers, typically uh, there's kind of like a, a cutoff point, like around 53, 54, 55, 5600, where it shifts. And you kind of get some guys with some guaranteed volume, but some warts to their game, like the DJ Moores, right? Where, hey, look, he's going to get double digit targets, but he's going to deal with Sam Darnold and a, and a dysfunctional offense. And they're not going to score many touchdowns and so on and so forth. Down in the 5Ks, it's typically more like the Kendrick Bournes, right? Where you're like, they're probably getting five or six targets. Maybe they get seven or eight. They have touchdown upside. They have big play upside. They can go for a big game. But if they miss, they might only get you six, seven, eight points. And so Claypool is priced appropriately if Deontay Johnson's playing. Deontay Johnson, if Deontay Johnson's out with COVID, which is expected, it's not guaranteed, but expected right now, then Claypool is just very underpriced. He should be priced at about 6,300, 6,500, maybe even 6,800 as a guy with a lot of upside and a, an extremely high likelihood of double-digit targets. So Chase Claypool and James Conner and Samaj P. Ryan are easily slotted in on this roster. There aren't a lot of guys under this 5K range who really stand out. And so what I wanted to do on this roster was get in my stack, and the different stacks all kind of come out to similar price tags. Like if I'd gone Brady plus Grayson, plus DJ Moore, it kind of comes out about the same. As I mentioned, if you go Huntley plus Mark Andrews plus Chase Claypool, it kind of comes out about the same. And so one of these stacks that I'm going to be putting in is going to end up taking up this certain amount of salary, right? And and then these other three guys are, I feel, three of the, you know, one thing we've always talked about with the bottom-up build. We're not looking for the cheapest plays we can stomach. We're not trying to build a a roster with 30K in salary spent. We're ultimately trying to say, who are the best values on the slate? And see if we can identify those. So Connor, P. Ryan, and Chase Claypool, to me, are three of the more underpriced players on the slate. Uh, I think all three of these guys, well, all three of these guys should 100% be priced at least 1K higher than they're priced if their roles are what we expect them to be, which basically that means if Deontay Johnson is out, if 
Samaj P. Ryan is truly the starter throughout this game and not getting pulled in the second quarter or something. And then, you know, James Conner, as long as he's healthy. So with the roles that these guys have, I would pay an extra 1K for any of them. And for at least Connor and P. Ryan, I could justify paying an extra 13 to 1500 potentially even for Claypool as well. I would have tougher decisions to make on all of them if they were 1500 more, but I would still consider them at least up to 1300 more on all three guys. So uh, some of the best values on the slate, in my opinion. So we've got what I think are the best stacks outlined. We've got the best values outlined. And then we're going to look at what if we just need to save some salary, because again, there aren't a lot of players under 5K, who I feel really good about this week. So we are going to go to Luke Farrell on the Jags. Jeff O'Shaughnessy should be out again. Farrell filled in at tight end. Farrell, we're... we're, Last week, right, I, I hate these weeks when it happens, where it's like, I went in on Moreau, and that kind of structured my build for me. That led me, you know, I was on the chief side of that, of that chief's Bengals game. Um, so I wasn't going to have a huge weekend regardless, but I could have had a much nicer weekend than I had. And I was kind of trying to decide between, do I want Kelsey and, or do I want uh, Kelsey and Mahomes or do I want Hill and Mahomes? I was going to have Daryl Williams on that roster regardless. So I was like, do I want Mahomes, Williams and Kelsey or Mahomes, Williams and Hill? Well, I ended up deciding, let me go Moreau and that forces me over to Tyreek Hill in that other decision. So it ended up really having a trickle-down effect for my rosters, and Moreau ended up seeing his fewest targets since he took over the lead role against the team that was facing the most tight end targets and allowing the most tight end yards and the most tight end touchdowns in the NFL. So it's just kind of one of those perfect storms. And I've had those happen before in the past where I kind of get frustrated about it, and then the next week, don't attack it again. And what ends up happening is either that player, so in this case, Moreau, which wouldn't happen because Darren Waller's coming back, but either that player ends up having a huge game the next week or another player in that same matchup has a huge game. So Luke Farrell, I don't even know anything about him. I just know that he played most of the snaps last week. I know that he ran a route on a large chunk of his snaps last week. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like, actually, let me look this up real quickly because I want to get this right. Okay. So the Jags only had 48 plays last week. Farrell played 35 of those 48 plays. He ran 21 of a possible 32 pass routes. He only had two targets, but Trevor Lawrence only threw 27 passes because the Jags didn't have the ball. Typically, Lawrence is throwing more like close to 40 passes. So in a spot where, as we know, The Colts tend to filter targets away from wide receivers toward the middle of the field, specifically toward tight ends. It makes sense that Farrell could end up seeing five to six, maybe even seven targets in this spot. So what type of output would you expect there? One of those like four catches for 30 yards type of outputs. If he gets a touchdown, you're just getting lucky. If he picks up an extra 10, 15 yards, you're getting lucky, right? You're not expecting him to break open the slate. When you're talking about a guy that you could spend, you know, and let's look at O'Shaughnessy's recent games, 8.9 DraftKings points, 10 DraftKings points, 6.1, 3.3, 7.9. So look at those outside the 3.3. 
if you're talking about, hey, just save some salary at tight end, and then I can fit in Jonathan Taylor and Cooper Cup if I want to, right? I don't like anything at tight end below Ertz and Mark Andrews. If you feel that way, and you're trying to find one of these 3,700, 3,400 tight ends, you could consider going all the way down to 2,500 just to make the salary work. So basically, that's how I ended up here, right? If he ends up with one of these 8.9, 10.7.9, 7.9, whatever these games are from O'Shaughnessy, if he ends up with one of those types of games, that's not bad at 2,500. The only way I would do it is like on this bottom-up build, I all the stacks were going to kind of cost the same. And so I put in the stack that I like the most. I wasn't going to sacrifice off of well, originally it was AJ Dillon and then became James Conner. Certainly not sacrificing off Conner, P. Ryan, or Claypool. So then it's like, how do you make this work? Well, I want to get a defense that can go for double digit points. I don't want to go to the cheap defense that, you know, I'm hoping they get me four or five or six points. And the cheapest defense there was the Vikings at 2,900. We'll get to them in just a second. But that kind of left me with, uh, uh, you know, 5,800 to spend at tight end and wide receiver, or I could change my stack or come off of Connor or P. Ryan or Claypool. And so when I kind of look at, looking at this is like, well, if I go off of Connor, P. Ryan, I, uh, Claypool, I'm sacrificing a lot of certainty and I'm still having to take like another cheap wide receiver, cheap tight end who are uncertain. So let me go with the let me just compact all my uncertainty on these two roster spots rather than spreading additional uncertainty across three roster spots, four roster spots. So the way that I would use somebody like Farrell is very specifically like that. If you're building a roster where it's like, you know what? I can't go below anybody else for what I'm trying to do on this roster. I really wanted to fit Jefferson and Cup on a roster together. I really wanted to fit Cup and Jonathan Taylor on a roster together. And I also wanted this stack and I also wanted to make sure that I got Connor and P Ryan or whatever running backs it is that you like. And so I have to save salary somewhere. And I'd rather, rather than changing the others, all the other spots in my roster and spreading in additional uncertainty, you know, you get these players where you're like, well, okay, if I change the stack, well, I'm doing something totally different with this roster. So I can't do that. That's three or four spots already. And then you've got these other spots where it's like, if I drop below this player, I'm in a totally different tier of player. Well, if you're in that type of spot, you don't want to change everything around, drop from your 6,300 running back that you love down to a 5,300 running back that you're guessing on just so that you can get up from your 2,500 tight end to a 3,500 tight end where you're still guessing. So that's hopefully that makes sense. That's the type of situation where I would play a tight end like Farrell. I'm not locking him into a roster, but if I were building a roster where where it's like, I really need something that unlocks the rest of this, he would make sense. He can get you six, seven, maybe even 10 points, possibly with a touchdown, 13 points. Or keep in mind, Trevor Lawrence has thrown two touchdown passes in his last nine games. So chances are not particularly high there, but Luke Farrell, 2,500 at tight end. And then at wide receiver in the flex, Brandon Zilstra, who's actually pretty easy to put in here because you've got the biggest pass funnel in the NFL. The Panthers are going to have to pass the ball here. Terrace Marshall is on IR. Shai Smith would have been extremely interesting this week, but he is on the COVID list. Doesn't look like he'll get cleared in time. And Robbie Anderson has a quad issue that is making him a game time call. So you have a spot where 
the Panthers are going to have to pass the ball a lot, and their number two and three and four receivers are out or potentially out. Zilstra is going to be the next guy up. He's going to be the number two receiver in this spot. And something like six, seven, or eight targets is pretty reasonable. Now, let's be clear. Last week, I was not moving off Braxton Berrios no matter what. Looking at his ownership projections, and he was up at 15% or 20% or whatever he was at, I felt he was going to be under-owned at that level. Like, I talked about Berrios a lot last week. You understand I like the play, but I like that was the type of play where it was like, no, no, the Jets are going to build their offense around this guy. If you watched that game, every single play was not every single play, but like 50, 60% of plays were built around Berrios as far as he was the guy in motion or he was the guy, you know, it's kind of thrown off the defense. He was the guy creating misdirection. He was the guy that they were trying to draw attention toward to do something else. He was the guy getting the ball and a designed play, right? Like everything's kind of built around Berrios when that, that Jets team is dealing with a bunch of injuries. And that was why I kept saying like, look, he, I wasn't expecting 25 points, but I kept saying, you know, what was it? Five career games with six or more targets. And he'd had double digit DraftKings points in all of those games. And it was just like the chances of him not seeing double digit targets against the Bucks were so low. And the chances of him not putting up double digit points against the Bucks on those targets was so low that at 3,700 and you're guaranteeing you lock in, you know, double digit points with upside for up to what I kept saying was like up to 19 to 20. Well, I'll take that every time. So I'm not putting Zilstra in that category, right? Like Berrios is a very unique skill set in terms of tight area space. I was reading some interesting, we're going to get a little bit longer here, but this is kind of some fun stuff. I was reading some interesting stuff this week about when the Rams drafted Cooper Cup and how excited they were. And they'd been following Cooper Cup since he was a sophomore in college at the uh, it was Les Snead was there or is their general manager and had been at the pay, at the Manning passing camp. And there was a, a, a meeting one night and they were kind of sorting through who, which, which receivers they were, they were going to be working with the next day. And Peyton Manning said to Eli, I'm working with cup. You pick who you want to work with. And Sneed was like, Oh, who's cup? Is he some up and coming high school player and wrote down his name and had to kind of search him out and found out, Oh, he's this, this sophomore at, out of Eastern Washington College and, and what's the deal with this guy, right? And so the Rams have been following him ever since then. And once they they said that once he ran his 46240, they like celebrated. They were like, we might be able to get him as late as the third round. As in like every other team's not going to be paying attention to this guy because of his 40 time. And we don't care about that. And what McVay said was basically Cup can do the things that a wide receiver needs to do, which is get open. Uh, Cup said, you know, the last time I put my hand on the ground and ran a 40 time was at the combine. Like, ran a 40 was at the combine. Like, that's not what a wide receiver needs to do. That's why players like Jerry Rice, Antonio Brown, rest in peace to his career, Cooper Cup, these guys who are not the fastest players are often the best. Devontae Adams isn't a super fast wide receiver. This is why these guys are still the best wide receivers in the NFL because they don't rely on their speed and just think, oh, I'm going to go out and dominate players with my speed like I did in high school and college. Instead, they have learned to dominate players as a football player and as a route runner and with their intelligence on the field. And so anyhow, 
I say all that to say that's kind of the type of player that Braxton Berrios is. Not, I'm not saying he's Cooper Cup, but for like a thirty, he's a thirty-seven hundred dollar Cooper Cup. He is uh, in that price range, as good as Cooper Cup is in his price range. Uh, and so I'm not putting Zilstra. That's all like a side trail, fun story time uh, to say that I'm not putting Zilstra in that category. But he is an interesting play this week. Finally, we'll wrap up with the Vikings defense. I've already talked about Justin Jefferson and the type of game flow that he needs. And we'll note that the Vikings, if they are having a strong game on defense, it is limiting this game environment as a whole. It is actively hurting a popular Justin Jefferson. So that's something that we really like in this spot. Additionally, the Bears have taken the second most sacks in the NFL. They have the second most giveaways in the NFL. The Vikings have the sixth most sacks per game and the 10th most takeaways. So it's a pretty good setup all the way around. And again, it is a good way to play off of of heavy Justin Jefferson ownership. If the Vikings defense is having a really good game, it probably means Justin Jefferson is suffering as a result. Not to say that he's going to have a 10, 11, 12 point game, but just to say that the chances of him putting up the type of score that you really should be looking for at his price tag will be lowered. That gives us a bottom-up build of Davis Mills, Brandon Cooks, A.J. Brown as our stack, James Conner, Samaj P. Ryan, and Chase Claypool as our favorite values, Luke Farrell, Brandon Zilstra as the guys who make it all work, and the Vikings defense special teams with that. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for hanging out this season. It's always a blast to do this with you guys, you guys and a handful of gals. And I really appreciate all the time, all the effort. I mean, we've spent, uh, added all up, we've probably spent about 24 hours of our lives together this season just on the Angles podcast alone. I guess you spent a little bit less than that if you've been playing this at 1.5x speed. You've spent whatever that is, about 16 hours. But this is the end of the season. This is actually the end of my regular season work. And I, and I don't do that much in the playoffs because I don't play playoff DFS because I love the NFL so much that I really enjoy just watching those games and taking a break from DFS at that point. So uh, I will have some stuff I'll be contributing throughout the playoffs, but we're going to have um, Scroll. We're going to have the Oracle. We're going to have stuff from Mike and Hilo and Larejo and Sonic and everybody else throughout the playoffs. And I'll have a few things in there as well. But this is kind of the, end of my work season player grids already out so uh yeah it's been a blast this has actually been my favorite season to date having all of this help on the side i think that what we've been putting out there has been incredible stuff and it's been so cool to see it all come together where it's not just me but it's kind of this team of awesome content providers and super sharp players with different perspectives all trying to get to the same pinnacle on the mountain so um also, shout out to Zanamir for his 100K win earlier this year. Shout out to Mike for what was his big win, like a 60, 70K weekend, something like that. Shout out to Poppy for he had a huge weekend a couple of weeks ago. And let's see, it's 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 time for me and Larejo and Sonic and Hilo and whoever else hasn't hit yet. Majestic, Todd, let's all have our big weekend this weekend. So uh, as always, thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate you guys being here. That's like a three-minute outro. I guess it's sometimes hard to say goodbye. But uh, yeah, I will see you guys on the site throughout the weekend, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. Sunday.